Um, well, there's a theme that easily emerges even as we read through the first chapter of Ephesians and as you get into the letter. And the theme is simply this, in Christ. Did you get that? We are alive in Jesus, specifically in Christ, in the Messiah. Uh, Paul uses this phrase in some form or another 165 times in his letters. And he uses it at least 36 times in this letter to the Ephesians, at least 10 times in this opening chapter. That whole section that was read for us from verse 3 to verse 14, it's like one great long sentence in Greek. It's kind of like that. Paul just starts writing and he's just overflowing with worship. It really is a doxology in a sense. It's this form of worship. It's not a theological treatise as much as it is just a song of worship that Paul lifts up. And we find in, in that uh, whole structure, what we find is what we've been singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? The Godhead three in one. And as you read through that opening uh, whole passage, you'll find uh, that Paul talks about the blessings of the Father being chosen in the Son and being sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's all there. It's wonderful. Dig into it. Read it. Memorize it. Share it. And uh, start to live it out as we go through this time. This phrase, in Christ, is absolutely the key to Paul's identity. Paul was writing this letter from prison, most likely in Rome. And so it wasn't a very uh, good outlook for him. He knew that the end was near. <laughs> and yet he's writing this, prison, uh, writing this letter full of praise. How does Paul do this? How does Paul seem to be the same in terms of his ability to praise God, whether, whether he's in prison or whether he's free, whether he's in danger or whether he's in good health, whether he's in poverty or whether he's in wealth? He always seems to be able to praise God. Don't you want to be like that? I do. What's his secret? He was found in Christ. And that's the puzzle that we have to kind of solve as we go through this. What does it mean to be in Christ? How do we live that out in our daily lives? That's what Ephesians is all about. It brings us to the question of our identity. And I know identity is a complicated subject. It's also a bit of a hot-button topic uh, within our current culture today. Um, but it's not a new topic. And it's not a topic just for our teenagers that are trying to find themselves, right? Right? Uh, if you're a little bit older and you've gone through some life changes, you begin to ask the same questions that maybe we asked when we were teens. Who am I and what am I doing here? And when we get to the question of identity, it's not just who am I. It's also a question of what value do I have, right? As we start to wonder to ourselves, am I worthwhile? That's what identity is all about. And that's partly what this letter is addressing. And we solve that riddle in many ways. We try and answer the identity question in a number of different ways. I think we usually start with the physical body, what we see in the mirror, right? This is who we are. This is our appearance. Or maybe this is my ability. This is what I can do. Or maybe we look to our sexuality in order to discover our identity, but then we look around us, and sometimes we look to our possessions. What do we own? That speaks something of our identity. 
I'm not riding my motorcycle right now, but I'm still a motorcycle rider. Is that part of my identity? We also look to the things that we accomplish, the plaques we hang on the wall, the ribbons that we have in our drawer, whatever it is that we accomplish. Sometimes for identity, we look to what? Our jobs, our career, what we produce. Maybe it's to our titles, what, we, what people call us. That's part of our identity too. Identity can include our ethnic origin. It can include our family history. It can include our key relationships to see how complicated identity becomes. And in all of this, we're asking the question, who am I? And am I worth something? Am I valuable? And that's a question that we have. And so as I stand before you today, I could be identified a number of different ways. I am a son. I'm going to call my mom this afternoon. I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I am a reverend. Don't ever call me that, but I am. No, it's fine to call me that. Um, I'm a friend. I am Canadian. Remember those old commercials, right? I am Canadian. We have a number of ways that we could self-identify today. You could all do the same as we struggle with who am I and what value do I have? And what I've just listed are a number of the positive ways. But equally, the challenge is that we also have a number of negative ways that we identify ourselves, right? So I might say, I'm aging. Samuel and I have been having conversations about the other side of 50 as we begin to march down the hill a little bit. I, I am aging. Um, I am out of shape trying to rectify that, but this is part of my identity perhaps, and I am bald. It's not a secret. It's, um... <laughs> but some of those things become negative markers for identity, and when we listen to those voices, we can become actually quite discouraged. Well, here's the difficulty. There's so many sources for our identity, this complex mosaic of identity that we have and that we inhabit, but a lot of these sources change with time, and you know this. I'm not saying anything that you don't know and that you haven't already experienced. And so what happens when we lose our job? Has anybody ever faced that, the loss of a job? It's not just a financial crisis, it's also sometimes an identity crisis, even people heading into retirement. And at first there's this great anticipation of retirement and then you get out there and suddenly the company goes on without you and people move with, you know, on with their lives and you, you say, who am I? What value do I have in this world now? And so we have something of an identity crisis. Or perhaps we lose our ability. Perhaps we face a sickness or a health struggle and we're not able to do the things that we want to do, and it's not just a crisis of mobility, it can become a crisis of identity. And so you see how this is woven through us. What happens when our kids, if we have kids and they grow up and they leave us? We hang on to some of them, right? The ones that we like? No, don't tell Triona that. I know you will, but... Um, so what happens when our kids move out and you suddenly look at each other if your spouse is still there and you, you say, who are we? What are we doing here? All of our energy has been poured here. What's our purpose? What happens when we lose our hair? And I know this is funny, but this is something I just share with you and maybe I've shared before, but in high school, 
no surprise, I did have hair. And um, in fact, in grade 11 at George Pringle Senior Secondary in West Bank, it was a little bit old school. You're not allowed to do this anymore. But every that went, everyone that went into grade 11 was kind of hazed by the grade 12s. And it was done publicly and it was sanctioned by the school. And so what happened was the grade 12s looked at all the grade 11s coming in and they decided that they were going to choose a character that the grade 11 person had to be, come to an assembly, and then they were going to make them do ridiculous things and make fun of them. I'm glad we don't do that in schools. I hope we don't do that in schools anymore. And so they pick characters that accentuate a particular characteristic of the person. Do you know who I had to be? And some of you will get this. Maybe some of you won't. I had to be the Fawns from Happy Days. Because I was known for having a giant black comb in my back pocket and combing my hair all the time. Maybe this is just God's way of, you know, bringing humility into my life or something like that. But this is weird, right? It's, it's part of the identity that I had in high school. And it's something that I don't have anymore. That's not part of my identity. Uh, I don't sing the song, oh, where is my hairbrush? I don't need to. I don't need a hairbrush. Well, I make that a little bit lighthearted, but we recognize that there are circumstances in our lives where we lose certain things over time, and it causes us to question our identity. Who are we? Why do we matter? What value do we have in this world? The invitation of the gospel is to find our identity in Christ. That's what Paul is all about in Ephesians, is to locate our identity in Jesus. Now, a lot of the things that we could read through Ephesians, we could read it as, because of Christ, we have these blessings. But Paul uses very specific language to talk about location. And he says, because we are located in Christ, we have these blessings. Now, that doesn't diminish the very many relevant things that make up our identity. But instead, the invitation is this, to establish a permanent location from which we can view our world. And that permanent location, says Paul, is in Christ. So we view our jobs, we view our spouse, we view our children, we view all that we have and own, our accomplishments, as Paul did, we view them from the position, the location of being in Christ. Well, we get the sense of identity right in the opening lines of the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Paul starts by giving his own self-identity, the identity of the author. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, we might have heard that so many times that we don't realize just how significant that is as Paul self-identifies as Paul and as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. When Saul was born, what was his Hebrew name? Or when Paul, I just gave it away. When Paul was born, what was his Hebrew name? Saul, right? Saul's a great Hebrew name. It's a King Saul. Yeah, I mean, he kind of went sideways, but you know, he still is the first king. And so King Saul is a great Hebrew name. But as little baby Saul grew up, he became who? Saul of Tarsus. And he was... Um, respected by the religious establishment, but he was feared by the new Christian community. Why? 
because Saul of Tarsus had the power, the ability to drag you and your friends into jail and put you to death if you were a follower of the way, of the way of Jesus. This was part of Saul's identity, is that he had this power, this authority, this status. But we know him mostly as Paul. What happened? Well, it didn't actually happen that he got a name change from God. Uh, sometimes Jesus, God, changes people's names. And sometimes we think Saul became Paul because of Damascus Road and Jesus gave him a new name. That's not what happened. Actually, what maybe happened is that Paul was his Roman name because he was a Roman citizen, born as a Roman citizen. And so he probably had two names. He had Saul and he had Paul. But there came a point where he decides to identify as Paul. Why is that? In Acts chapter 13 and verse 9, Luke tells us this, this simple phrase, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, and from that point on, he's always called Paul. What does Paul mean? Well, Paul means little. <laughs> so if you have a Paul here, we have little. And so this man went from being King Saul to little Paul, and he preferred little Paul. Paul was his Roman name. He was a messenger to the Gentiles. He adopted that whole culture and habit, and he identified in this way for the benefit of the gospel, but also in humility, recognizing that he was little Paul so that God might be glorified in his life. He wasn't this great teacher, this, this person that was admired by the religious establishment that all had all kinds of credentials. Paul says he actually considers that all like dung. He used a very strong word to, to explain and express his relationship to all the credentials, his identity of his past. And now he is little Paul. And he's content with that so that Christ might be glorified through his life. And so that's part of his identity that we're finding here. Um, Paul's identity shift is very, very important. Tim Keller says this, Paul sees all kinds of sins in his past and all kinds of accomplishments too, but he refuses to connect them with his core identity, which is what? In Christ. So all those things he considers loss so that he might be found in Christ. Well, not only do we find the identity of the author, but we also find the identity of the recipients. Paul says in this general letter that would have been circulated among many churches, I'm sure, he says it's to the Ephesians, and he identifies them as what? Saints. To the saints in Ephesus. To the literally the holy ones. Now, again, we might have heard that so many, so many times that we might not see the significance. But Ephesians were not known to live holy kind of lives, at least the way that we would consider holiness. This would have been a surprise, perhaps, to many. Uh, if Ephesus, and some of you have been there, Ephesus had a giant temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a temple to Artemis, sometimes called Diana. And Diana had to do with fertility. And so there's a couple of ways that you could enter into the worship of Diana. One is that you could go to the great library that was in Ephesus and gain superior knowledge. 
Or you could go downstairs under the library to a secret tunnel that led to the brothel. So the other way that you entered into worship of Diana is through ecstatic sexual experiences. This was what Ephesus was known for. And maybe if you went there, they would talk about the tunnel that was found under the library directly to the ancient brothels. So when your husband was heading out in the morning, he said, honey, I'm just going to study for a little while at the library. Then you kind of wondered, what's that man up to, right? Actually, you didn't wonder because most people, that's how they engaged in this kind of ecstatic form of worship. And so that's what Ephesus was known for. How could Paul suddenly say to the saints, (laughs) to the holy ones, well, because they are holy in Christ, not by their own works, not by their own reputation, because they are located, they are found in Jesus. And that's the essence of what it means to be called a saint. Well, as Paul goes on through this passage that was read, there's three key words that he uses to describe our identity in Christ. I just want to mention them, highlight them, so that you can go home maybe, and uh, this week look over them. The first word is this, blessed. He said, in Christ you are, not just the Ephesians, but you and me are blessed. Verse 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Because we are united with Christ. He has blessed us. You and I, as followers of Jesus today, we are blessed. And not in the, you know, hashtag blessed kind of way. Not in the, in the way that we sometimes use that word. When, when we feel like we're having a lucky day and go, oh, I'm so blessed today. It's not trivial like that. This idea of being blessed by God is actually quite profound and might unsettle us a little bit. The ancient word for blessing and also the ancient Greek word, the Hebrew word and Greek words for blessing, they also have an image, a picture with it, a posture of blessing. In order to bless someone, you knelt down before them and you offered them a gift. That's a blessing. That's what it means to bless someone, to kneel before them and to offer them a gift. At the end of the service, when I lift my hand up in blessing, what I'm really doing is I'm kneeling before you and I'm offering you a prayer for the gift of God's peace, right? When we say a blessing before we're about to eat, we're not blessing our food, really. Maybe sometimes we need to because we've overcooked it. But we're not blessing our food. We're blessing God for our food. We're offering a gift of praise to God. We're kneeling before God and saying thank you for the food that we have, right? Well, here is the amazing twist that Paul brings to us. He says that God has blessed us. God has knelt down and offered us a gift. Does that make you uncomfortable? I hope it does. Makes me uncomfortable. Why would God kneel before me? Well, God doesn't kneel before us because we're somehow superior. He kneels before us because he's gracious. The image I have in mind uh, when I think about this is the image of an adult seeing a young child come up and kneeling down to the child and offering them a gift, right? That's what God does for us in Christ. If you don't believe it, read Philippians. 
Read the time when it says that Jesus did not consider equality to be God something to be grasped at or held onto, but made himself of no reputation. He came down. God kneels before us and offers us a gift. We are blessed by God in Christ. That's part of our identity. That's something of who we are. That's the kind of value that you have. That's the kind of value that I have that God would come kneel and offer us a gift. That's amazing. He uses another amazing word, a second word here. And this one could uh, erupt in all kinds of conversations, but the word is chosen. We are chosen. Verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Even before you were a spark in your father's eye, (laughs) God knew you and loved you and chose you. This isn't about selecting some and not selecting others. We don't have to go down those roads. This is a word, a concept that would have been applied to God's covenant people of the Old Testament. And now Paul radically is taking that word chosen and applying it to the Gentiles, mostly you and me, and saying you also are chosen Not because you're good-looking, not because you're great, not because of your accomplishments, but because he loves you. That's the only reason we're given. God loved you and he has chosen you. How? In Christ. That's the secret. There is one elect of God and that is Jesus. And if we are found in him, then we also are chosen of God. And so that is a beautiful thing, but the secret, the key is in Christ. So we are blessed in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. And the third word that I want to highlight is this, adopted. We are brought into this family, uh, not naturally. We don't naturally belong, most of us, but God has adopted us in. Some of you have been through the adopting process, whether you've been adopted or adopted others, and you know some of the the strain and the difficulty of that, but also some of the beauty and the blessing of that, of being brought into a family. Well, in the ancient world, in the time of Jesus and of Paul, adoption in the Roman world was very, very significant and involved a whole new identity. William Barclay says it like this, the person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family and completely lost all rights in his old family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new was he that even all debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. Anybody want to adopt me? I'm just looking. So isn't that amazing? So if you're adopted legally into a new family, even if you had debts or obligations, they were wiped out. What an amazing word Paul picks up to talk about the spiritual reality that we experience in Christ. All those debts, all those sins of the past. And this was so important for Paul. All of it is wiped out. It's not held against us. It can't be brought up. We can't be brought up on charges for all of those things in the past, is what Paul is saying. Because we have a new identity in a new family. We are adopted. How? In Christ. In Christ. 
We have sonship. I know that sounds like sexist language, but it's meant to convey this idea that in the ancient world, all the privileges and rights of being an adopted son are ours, whether we're male or female. And that's what we find in Christ. So this then is the foundation of our true identity. We are loved by God. We are chosen by God. We are blessed by God. We are adopted by God in Christ. That's your location today. That's where we are located if we are followers of Jesus. In fact, we are made to be saints. So even as you go for coffee today and you support Guatemala and you find out how you can do that, and as you greet one another, feel free to introduce yourself as, well, even Saint Doug will allow Doug to be known as a saint. It's a stretch, but According to the Bible, it's true. Why? Because Doug is in Christ, right? We are saints. That is our location. This is the view from our seat with Jesus in the heavenly realms. That's a very different viewpoint. If you've ever been involved in real estate or bought a house or gone into real estate, you might know the three key things about buying a house is what? According to real estate, location, 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 right? That's what they keep drumming into you. Sometimes it's more like price, 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 right? But uh, location, 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 the realtors will tell us. When we uh, moved to Calgary in 20, uh, when did we move? 14, <laughs> losing track of time. Moved in 2014. Um, it was kind of a hot market, and so we were looking around for houses. We had one day in Calgary. We had a great uh, real estate agent. She took us all over, all the right places. And we settled on two possible places that were very, very similar. And she said to us, you have to decide now. They will be gone tomorrow. One wasn't really even on the market yet. And so these two places were very similar and yet very different. One was up in the Northwest and one was the place that we're living in now in Queensland. And uh, they were similar in that they had the same structure. They were a townhouse. They're about the same price point. The one up in the Northwest, however, had a new furnace, a new hot water tank, a finished basement, a full finished ensuite, all updated appliances, carpeting, painting, and everything. It was a much newer building. So why didn't we go for that? Well, because the place we're at at Queensland has a view. <laughs> location, location, location. Out of our back windows, surprisingly, in this little part of Queensland, we've got a million-dollar view. We didn't pay a million dollars for it, but we think it's amazing. We get to look over just the tail end of Fish Creek Park at Mallard Point. We see the Bow River flowing by. When uh, we first moved there, I told my friends in BC that I could see Saskatchewan. I think they believe me. Almost. But we see the sunrise when there's no clouds. We see the sunrise come up every morning, and it's beautiful. And honestly, that was a major factor, that location and that view in settling where we are today. Location and the view. Well, here's my point. Paul invites us to locate our sense of identity in Christ and then view the rest of the world from that location. View our struggles and our triumphs, view our jobs, our children, our health, 
whatever it is that informs our identity, let's sit in the location with Jesus and in Christ and view the world from that vantage point. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that your Son, in great humility, came down to offer us the gift of his life so that we might not only know you, but that we might be found in Christ. Father, this is a truth that we feel that we we touch, but we don't fully grasp. And so I pray that by your Spirit, you'd simply help us to experience the peace of being found in your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.